Good morning. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Dale, and I'm part of the team that, that helps lead New Life Community Church. And today, we're going to be looking at how being a disciple of Jesus means being devoted to mission. But I want to start this morning by quoting a story that I recently read. This is the story of how on the 12th of January, 1899, RNLI lifeboat volunteers undertook one of their most arduous feats to date. The Forest Hall was a 1,900-ton ship sailing from Bristol to Liverpool, which carried 13 crew and five apprentices. Severe stormy weather threatened to run the ship ashore at Porlock, several miles east of Lynmouth. It had been under tow, but the cable had snapped and the rudder washed away in the strong winds. At 7.52 p.m., the Lynmouth lifeboat station received a telegram reporting that the Forest Hall was drifting ashore at Porlock Weir. The squally weather prevented the crew from launching their lifeboat from the harbour. But coxswain Jack Crocombe proposed that the life group be taken overland and launched, launched from Porlock Weir, where it was more sheltered. This was a 13-mile journey which included a quarter gradient climb of 434 metres over Countersbury Hill and a trek across Exmoor. Around 100 local people gathered to haul the Louisa, which was a 10 metre long and weighed 10 tonnes lifeboat. They were aided by 18 horses sent from a local farm. And six men were sent ahead with shovels to actually widen parts of the road. And after the difficult climb up Countersbury Hill, the crowd stopped for refreshments at the Blue Ball Inn, where they had to repair a carriage wheel that had fallen off. Most of the 100 helpers turned back, leaving just 20 men, including the four lifeboat crew. And it was their job to control the boat down the hill into Portlock. At one stage, the boat was dragged on skids as the road was too narrow for the carriage and couldn't be widened. Now, the 20 men were able to safely navigate their way down the hazardous terrain of Portlock Hill, even having to break down part of a garden wall to let the carriage and horses through. The men finally reached the sea at 6.30 a.m. on the 13th of January, after a nearly 11-hour journey. And although they were tired and hungry, they immediately launched the boat. It took them another hour to reach the forest hall, rowing through the rough seas and the ferocious storm. The ship had anchored close to Helston Point, and the lifeboat stood by, rowing continuously to keep a safe position. At daylight, two tugs arrived and managed to get a rope across to tow the ship, and several of the lifeboatmen from the Louisa went aboard the ship to help the exhausted sailors raise the anchors. The tugs towed the ship across the channel to Barry accompanied by the lifeboat in case any difficulties arose. They arrived safely at 6 p.m. that evening. The Lynmouth lifeboat crew rowed back that night, finally reaching home at 11.30 a.m. on the 14th of January. And their heroic and incredibly difficult rescue meant that the 18 crew of the Forest Hall all survived, and it still stands as one of the most challenging feats undertaken in RNLI history. That was a long story. 
And you might be asking me even now, why have you told us that story? What's that got to do with what you're supposed to be talking about? Well, my message this morning is on mission, specifically the fact that as disciples of Jesus, each one of us is called to be devoted to his great salvation mission. But as I was preparing this message, I felt God didn't just want us to go straight into the details or the practicalities of his mission. Because I felt first he wanted to challenge us all on what it means to be devoted to a mission. You see, on the RNLL website where I found the story, I found a couple of statements that blew me away. Excuse me. The first was a vision statement of sorts, and I'm going to read it to you. It goes like this. Across the years, many things have changed, but the courage and commitment of our lifesavers has continued to the present day. And here's the key point. As we work towards our goal of saving everyone, the goal of the RNLI, I'm going to keep getting that wrong, is that they want to save everyone. That's a big vision, isn't it? That's a life or death, all or nothing, in it to win it vision. They're not content to save just a few people. It's not even enough for them to save most people. Their goal is to save everyone who is in distress and at risk of perishing at sea. And the next obvious question is, how are they going to see that goal achieved? What are they going to do to make that happen? Well, as I read around, I found a kind of mission statement. And they say this, day or night, on calm seas or in ferocious storms, if someone is at peril at sea, the RNLI will do all we can to save them. Their mission is that no matter when or what the circumstances are, their lifeboat crews are dedicated to doing all they can to save people. And evidently, all they can do includes dragging a 10-ton lifeboat 13 miles uphill and across country, widening roads, breaking down walls, battling through hunger and tiredness just so they can get to the people that they're trying to save. That's not just admirable or commendable. It's incredible and it's inspiring, right? For the men and women who are in danger of perishing at sea, it means the RNLI are a source of hope and a mechanism of salvation. But I believe God would say to us that this morning it means they are also a metaphor for what it looks like to be devoted to God's mission. Now, brothers and sisters, before I say anything else, before I utter another word about the practicalities of God's mission, I want us to align ourselves with the heart of God's mission. Because I believe God would remind us this morning that we are called to be a lifeboat crew. We are called to be the source of hope in hopelessness. We are called to be a mechanism for salvation for those who are perishing in their sin because there are people who are at this very moment in danger of drowning in the sea of life. 
I want you to imagine a terrible storm on the ocean. And God gave me this picture for you. And as you look out from your lifeboat, there are people who you recognize as some of your neighbors, clinging and clawing to hang onto planks and bits of flotsam just to keep their heads above the water. There are people from amongst your families that are in dinghies waiting in terror for the inevitable wave that their shore will swamp and capsize them. There are people from your workplace who are in huge merchant vessels going about their business, but in a moment, a wave comes and their rudders are broken and they find themselves at the mercy of the storms of life. And there are people in your community who are on cruise ships pursuing all that life has to offer blissfully unaware that an even greater storm and more terrible storm of God's judgment is coming that no one will escape. I want you to understand this morning that it's not our job to decide who is and isn't saved. It's our job as a lifeboat crew to try and rescue every one of them. Now that's a big vision. That is a life or death, all or nothing, in it to win it, God-given mission. We are not to be content to just see a few people saved. Do you know that? In fact, we shouldn't stop even if we saw most people in our lives saved. Because even then, our heart should be to try and save everyone who is in distress and at risk of perishing. 1 Timothy 2 tells us that God, in verse 4, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In Ezekiel 33, 11, the Lord God declares, I take no pleasure in the death of wicked people, God says. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. John 3, 16 to 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And Romans 10.13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God is calling us afresh this morning to be a lifeboat crew to a perishing world. And that means that no matter what or when the circumstances are, we are called to be dedicated to doing all we can to save people. And and that means doing all we can do to carry this beautiful gospel and this glorious good news uphill and across country, widening roads, breaking down walls so we can get to the people we're trying to save. That's what the Apostle Paul means in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says this. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means 
I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Just like a lifeboat crew, our priority and our lives must be dedicated to the mission of doing everything we can to save those who are perishing. And we're on call 24-7, which means we should be prepared to reach out with the life-saving message of the gospel to anyone at any time who is in danger of perishing and in need of Jesus. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. We live in a world where people are perishing. They are perishing in their sin. And they don't even know it. And it's our job to break down barriers, to do everything we can to take that gospel to them. To share with them that Jesus died in their place and for their sins. Rose again on the third day, destroying death and sin and giving them eternal life. That's our job. That's the hope that we carry inside our hearts. That's the message that we have to deliver. But what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus and be devoted to God's mission? Well, just like the RNLI, it starts with a vision, right? A vision of a future time and place where all wrongs are righted, where no evil exists, where death is replaced by eternal life, and where the twisting, distorting influence of sin itself is no more. The Bible calls this place the kingdom of God. And we get a glimpse, like a small window of it, <laughs> in what is an actual vision received by John in Revelation 7, 9 to 17. And I'm going to read it to you. And as I do, I want you to have this picture building in your mind. This is where we're going. This is the hope we carry. John says this. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. 
The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a glorious picture of our future destination. And it's just one picture of what it will be like when the kingdom of God comes in all of its fullness. But it's a picture of an innumerable multitude of people from all races, nationalities, backgrounds, and walks of life coming together as one people and worshiping King Jesus together. And it's clear that this is a sovereign, saving work of God. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's be clear about that. Sovereignly, God is over all salvation. But I want you to know, and I want to remind you, that we have a part to play in, guess what? In filling out that crowd of worshippers. And we have a part to play in hastening that future day, in getting it here more quickly. Because it's this vision and hope we carry in our hearts and we offer to everybody. It's this beautiful, glorious future that we've been saved into that motivates and moves us to reach out to those around us. If I am going to such a place, don't I want others to come with me? And that leads us from the vision to the mission. How will we see that goal achieved? What can we do to help make that happen? Matthew 28, 18 to 20 says this, And Jesus came and said to them, the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is our great co-mission. As disciples devoted to Jesus, we are called to go and make other disciples that are devoted to him, to his word, devoted to prayer, to relationship, to service, to growth, and to his mission. As a community of believers that embraces Jesus' mission to take his good news to the ends of the earth, I want to tell you that the best thing we can do is to start that mission on our doorstep by remembering that we are God's evangelists to our families. We're his missionaries to our towns. We're his ambassadors to our culture. And we are his witnesses to the world. And you might say to me, but how do I even do that? How do I be a witness? How do I be an evangelist? How do I be an ambassador? I want you to remember that in this world full of people who are perishing, your individual salvation story is a testament to the goodness and the faithfulness of the one who died to save them too. It doesn't matter if you gave your life to Jesus when you were five, when you were 15, or when you were 50. You have a salvation story that is uniquely your own 
And yet sharing it with someone could save their life just as surely as if you'd given them a life jacket. God has done a work in your life in adding you into his kingdom. And when we share that testimony with others, we give them a window into what it looks like to be children of the Most High God, loved so much that he died for us. That is so powerful. And it's, it's in our brains. We can access it at any time. Elsewhere in Scripture, God's, Jesus says to his disciples before, he's, before the cross, he says to them, don't worry when they hand you over to the authorities. because Don't worry about what you're going to say because in that moment, the Holy Spirit is going to give you what you need to say. Now, he said that to his disciples in a particular moment at a particular time. But the thing is, that truth is just as true today as it was then. Whether or not you're handed over to authorities or to your neighbor who's looking at you wondering what it is that makes you go to church on a Sunday morning. You can still trust in the Holy Spirit to give you the words to say in that moment. I want you to understand these things don't all rest on your shoulders. God at work in you is doing stuff, giving you the ability to reach out beyond your means and your capability. How do you think I'm standing here this morning? It's not because I'm clever or because I'm really confident. I was shaken in the bathroom 10 minutes ago. I'm here because God does something inside me that enables me to share what he puts on my heart with you guys. I want to encourage you. That's not me saying try harder. That's me saying let God do what he's doing. I want to finish on this final point. You, you may have heard Matthew 28, 18 to 20 so many times in your journey with Jesus that by now you hear it and the words almost wash over you. And you think, yeah, I know. I know we're called to go to the nations, tell people the gospel. I understand. But I want to <clears throat> share with you something that I learned a while ago that is a constant encouragement to me in my endeavor to be devoted to Jesus' mission. And it's rooted in verse 20. Jesus came to his disciples and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus says he's been given all authority in heaven. That is the spiritual realm with its principalities and powers and all authority on earth, which is the place where we bumble about, isn't it? That's a claim that only God the Son can make. All authority in the heavenly places and on earth is given to him. Can you see how that leaves nothing outside of his catchment? There is, there's nothing else exists apart from things in the heavens and things on the earth, right? He wants to encourage and reassure his disciples and by extension us that there is no realm, there is no circumstance, there is no possibility outside of his jurisdiction. He wants to confirm what his disciples, having seen him raised from the dead, already know. He is God. The same God that flung the stars out into space and breathed life into dust. 
And this fact, this truth, this reality is the foundation for sending both the disciples and us out into the world with the gospel. It's the basis for both our obedience and our confidence. It's as if Jesus is saying, in light of who I am, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In other words, he's saying, go boldly and confidently in the sure knowledge that I, God the Son, who has authority over all situations and circumstances and principalities and powers, am sending you. And then at the end of verse 20, he says this, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus bookends his instructions to go and make disciples with an assurance that he will be with us always. Jesus knew then and he knows now what he's asking of his disciples. He knows the road ahead might be tough. He knows the task he's commissioned us to do will require bucket loads of faith. So he first establishes who he is and then he promises his ongoing presence with us. And through his spirit in us, he is present in every conversation, every interaction, every encounter and opportunity that we have to share this glorious gospel. Do you know it was his spirit that fell on Peter in the book of Acts? And he took a scaredy cat and he turned him into a roaring lion for the gospel that saw 3,000 people added in one day. That's not because Peter was awesome. That's because God is. So what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for you? Well, it means, dear brothers and sisters, that God's great mission is rightly at the very heart of all the activities of the church. It means that as disciples devoted to that mission, when we spend time considering our risen King Jesus and contemplating his might, his power, his sovereignty, we will always be stirred to faith and confidence. Always. We've done it this morning. When we sing those words about how great our God is, our hearts are built up. We're excited. We're equipped. We're ready to go because we know that God is bigger. God is greater. God is more mighty than anything we might face or encounter. It means that Jesus' promise to us to be with us always is as current and as powerful now as it was to his first disciples. It means you personally have a part to play in adding brothers and sisters to that heavenly crowd of worshippers that you'll be rubbing shoulders with for all eternity. Imagine that. Imagine your family member, your friend, your neighbor, who you share the gospel with. You get to spend eternity with them. But most importantly this morning, it means that if you have been saved by Jesus, then when, that when it comes to the storms of life, you personally are not clinging to a plank, just trying to keep your head above water. You're not in a dinghy, fearful of the next wave. You're not rudderless at the mercy of the storm. But I have a caution for you. 
you must not be fooled into thinking you're on a pleasure cruise either. Because King Jesus has commissioned you to be a lifeboat crew. A crew that has a mission to save those who are perishing without him. So be challenged, but be encouraged. And be obedient. Because the next time you see a gospel opportunity, who knows what God might do through you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you afresh for the good news of your life, your death and resurrection, King Jesus. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are on that mission to see people saved and added to your kingdom. I want to pray this morning for a fresh anointing and a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit that equips them and builds them up in boldness and confidence to share their testimony, to share the good news of what you have done in their lives, how you have saved them and what you've saved them from, so that we might see a harvest of salvations in their lives, in their families, friends, neighbors, communities, in this town. King Jesus, we thank you that it is you and your authority and your power that is at work in us and that nothing is impossible for you. I thank you for that picture, Lord, of worshiping you for eternity, shoulder to shoulder, with people from all different nations, tribes, and tongues. Thank you for those robes that we'll be wearing that are washed clean in your blood. I thank you that you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Thank you that there will be nothing to harm or hurt us in that day. Thank you for the hope in us that that produces. And I pray that we would go out from here with those things ingrained on our hearts and at the forefront of our minds, that we might glorify you and we might be obedient to your call upon us to be lifeboat crew to those who are perishing in a sea of sin.